You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margaret Adovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. And this week's topic is Alberta Premier Danielle Smith's position on Alberta for carbon neutrality by 2050, plus a federal cabinet retreat with the housing crisis front and center. Margaret, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Karen. Good to be here. Now, Margaret, tell us why you're in Banff today and what you're learning. For the umpteenth time, I'm here at the Banff Energy Forum, and it's an annual gathering of energy sector leaders. I've attended for many years now, and it's always informative, uh, lots of phenomenal panels and speeches, and overall a great opportunity to meet people at the center of the action, uh, whether they are business executives, advocates, civil society leaders. Um, so lots of uh, really, really timely conversations happening right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, today kicked off with uh, remarks from Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. I found... Uh, her uh, discussion of Alberta's role within the nation and the world at large as it relates to energy and environment to be incredibly illuminating. Uh, you know, she stressed that Alberta is an energy leader. Uh, we all know that. And it continues uh, to be one uh, for decades to come, uh, saying that they will be bold. They will rely on a fresh approach to drive value, leveraging both foundational industries in oil and gas and also new opportunities with new technologies uh, like hydrogen and carbon capture utilization and storage, DCUS. Um, she spoke a lot about uh, Trans Mountain Expansion Project, uh, which uh, brings Alberta oil uh, across British Columbia to markets. Uh, that's nearing completion, about 50 kilometers left to go, and uh, egress, the ability to access market, was a really big part of her remarks. Um, she also spoke a lot about liquefied natural gas, LNG, uh, calling it a particularly important opportunity. Uh, we have uh, shared between British Columbia and Alberta one of the richest, most uh, promising, and the cleanest burning uh, natural gas deposits in the world, the Montague Formation. And uh, in other words, we need to be assertive about uh, moving more of the products uh, from that deposit to the world. Uh, she cited particularly the applications of natural gas for electricity generation and steel production as an alternative to coal. Uh, both uh, European and Asian countries right now are seeking long-term supply, and uh, a lot of that was triggered by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, she cited Vietnam. Uh, they have 13 new LNG plants uh, being planned. And, uh, you know, if we want to enable those countries to get to those targets, um, by 2030, which is what they've identified, rather than uh, relying on coal, they will need Canadian LNG. Um, another piece that came up in a panel discussion uh, just after her remarks uh, is the need for emissions offsets to be recognized. Uh, China, Japan, others are negotiating, um, as well as with Canada, on Article 6 implementation from the Paris Agreement, uh, even in bilateral forms, so maybe not an international system that everyone can participate in, but at least one where there's agreements between nations. Um, and that could actually get us closer to ensuring that Canada's contributions to reducing emissions uh, associated with coal consumption are being recognized and factor against our uh, emissions in production of energy products. Uh, she's looking to Premier EB as a partner on this, alongside other Western premiers. And on the global angle more, you know, she spoke a lot about the ability for Canadian energy to lift standards of living for billions of people around the world who live in energy poverty, uh, citing, of course, the valuable domestic benefits of this opportunity. Indigenous participation and leadership is a trend that we're seeing across the energy sector and many other uh, heavy energy-intensive industries like mining. Um, Alberta came to the table with some uh, really unique uh, modes of backstopping investment by Indigenous communities 
uh, through the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. Uh, they actually underwrote a very big purchase by 23 Indigenous groups from Alberta in Enbridge's pipeline system. Um, so there's a lot of pressure right now on the federal government to get in on this as well. Um, but obviously a, a lot of progress has been made. Uh, even before all these new technologies coming on, on board, uh, they've already achieved 44% methane emissions reductions relative to 2014 levels. Um, so lots of work ahead, but I think the innovation and research um, that is being encouraged in Alberta will allow the technology development that we need to be delivered at a scale for broad-based expansion and to really enable us to lead the world. So very exciting stuff there. Now, Premier Smith has gained a reputation for going to fisticuffs with the federal government. Would you unpack her perspective on federal-provincial relations for us a bit more? Yeah, her continued use of the term carbon neutrality, uh, not net zero, which is what the federal government uses, is very telling. Uh, Carbon neutrality by 2050 is a target she's identified, not net zero by 2050, and she says it is a realistic target. Um, As a general principle, I think Alberta does a really good job defining the narrative uh, in energy conversations nationally. You know, just look at the words, it's just transition. Uh, you know, the federal government is trying to call it the sustainable jobs legislation, but uh, Alberta politicians, you know, whether Premier Smith or her predecessor, Kenny, uh, continue to use the uh, initial terminology, just transition, because the fundamental premise of transitioning away from oil and gas actually garnered a lot of opposition from oil and gas producing regions across the country. Um, so they've done a really good job, and I'm not sure that the federal government is, has succeeded in changing the tone of the conversation, at least in, you know, these parts of the country. Um, overall, she's also really making clear that Alberta is the one that is taking the lead, that is doing the hard work first. Uh, she said it's the only Canadian jurisdiction putting carbon away uh, from industrial emissions uh, on a sizable level. Um, and uh, there's a, a strong need now for the federal government to come to the table uh, to help create the fiscal support so that all industrial emitters who want to use carbon capture technologies have the certainty to make those investments. Um, and, you know, she, she did say very clearly, though, that, uh, um, you know, even if they can't get the federal government on side, they will do it. Um, you know, either way, uh, they, they plan to have uh, reduced emissions and an increased global role as a result of that. And full policy from the federal government um, isn't going to hold that back. It may limit it. It may actually impact it, particularly on things like electricity. Um, but, uh, you know, she's, firming, she's holding a very firm line on this. Um, one of the other areas that we've spoken about on past shows is the, uh, as she called it, the overhyped net zero by 2050 electricity grid. Uh, I don't know if it's overhyped, but she does make a good point that hundreds of billions in uh, extra costs are going to be imposed on the country as a whole based on these requirements. And in her view, these costs could send oil and gas investments, punish consumers and business owners, and actually challenge our ability to uh, offer a competitive, safe, reliable power grid nationally, um, particularly since the timeline is a little bit more aggressive. So she wants to see us do that by 2050, uh, which could save us $52 billion in costs uh, in terms of speeding up that timeline. But the feds want to do it by 2035. Um, so there's, there's a lot of negotiation debate that needs to continue to take place. Um, priorities that are specific to Alberta's interests, uh, but as a whole, I, I think I agree with her argument that we need to work really closely in this provincial, federal uh, framework uh, to get to shared outcomes and shared solutions. If we're not able to do that, then we will have policy mechanisms that are operating across purposes. And that doesn't engender the kinds of outcomes that we desperately need to see in a world that is facing economic uncertainty and geopolitical uncertainty in the future. 
Now, let's switch to another hot topic, the housing crisis. The federal cabinet just had a retreat hearing from housing experts about necessary solutions across the spectrum. What are you expecting to come from that? Well, the context is important. Uh, At present, no one can afford to live in cities like Vancouver. Uh, You know, I'm struggling. I've been looking for a place to live, and oh my gosh, the prices are just astronomical. Uh, According to recent uh, research, $3,300 a month is the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver. I was looking at a community uh, that's uh, built in Tempe, Arizona recently, and, you know, they're putting up uh, one-bedroom apartments in a nice city for, I think, 1500 U.S. a month, which is still higher than, uh, I think, you know, we could have been paying 10 years ago, uh, but is far, far lower. It's, uh, you know, less than half of what your average Vancouverite would be facing um, looking for a place to rent uh, in this very, very hot market. Um, So the housing shortage that has been caused by decades of damaging policies on the municipal level uh, have blocked new homes from being built. And as a result, we're now losing talent and human capital from our major cities. Many of my peers, educated professionals who come from B.C., they love B.C., have had to move away, including two provinces like Alberta. Um, and so far, the federal approach has, hasn't really gone full speed ahead. It's tried to balance something that isn't easy to balance. Uh, the fact that many Canadians have their family wealth, their financial future in their homes, as well as their retirement savings, and the sort of counterpoint that we need, which is moving aggressively to produce supply, that can affect the growth trajectory for those investments. Um, but if you put that against the extreme cost pressures that those who rent are facing, compounded by challenging cost of living, inflation, and other areas, um, you, you come up with just an untenable situation. Uh, and our economic growth, our ability to attract and retain high-quality talent is going to be really threatened if we can't act quickly on this housing crisis. On the federal side, uh, Sean Fraser is now in the housing portfolio. He was formerly the immigration minister. And just recently, he actually flagged international student towns as a potential mechanism to quell demand a bit. Um, of course, post-secondary institutions, which uh, these days base their business on growing international student tuition, are crying foul. Uh, Quebec also says that it's not the federal government's business to interfere in this space. Um, so that's, I, I think, an interesting proposal. I'm not sure I agree with the mechanisms around it. It might work in the short term, but the fundamentals that more housing needs to be built continue to be true. Uh, and either way, voters are demanding and absolutely will demand more in the next federal election. Uh, you know, the currently stands cabinet did not come out of the retreat with a housing plan, and the clock is ticking for them to do that quickly. Mm, it certainly is. Now, one more thing, Margareta. Conservative Party of Canada leader Pierre Polyev is getting some serious pickup on his housing policy-based criticisms of the current government. What's driving that? We're in the midst of a major generational shift in political preferences. Uh, young Canadians, according to recent polling, are leading blue, uh, kind of surprising, while older Canadians uh, generally prefer the Liberals nationally. And, of course, that's a stunning reversal of the trend we observed in the lead-up to the 2015 election when the Liberals slumped government with a red wave. Uh, I think Polyev has found a resonant message with the millennial demographic that is, like me, bearing the brunt of affordability issues. And he's digging in deep. He's going to continue to do that because he knows it's a message that plays well. Uh, one proposal that he's pitched, which I know the federal government has done some work on, but from the sounds of it, in his view, not enough, uh, is tying federal funding for transportation, like rapid transit projects, to density. Uh, so you need to build more. Cities must be compelled to do that if they want to get federal dollars to build trains and, and things like that. Um, in a general sense as well, I haven't really seen publications like the CBC until very recently provide this kind of uncritical profile to a federal conservative leader in a very, very long time. Uh, they're doing that right now with Polyev. 
Um, so that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, it does put a lot of pressure on the Liberals to respond. And uh, coming out of the retreat, the Prime Minister said, I'll quote, we owe it to you to take action so you can fully benefit from the promise of Canada, so you can succeed and access all the opportunities the generations before you had. And uh, he said, as a team, this is one of our top priorities. The coming days will ultimately tell if this will be enough. It takes years to build housing, uh, five to seven to eight or nine years in, in cities like Vancouver, which is just absurd. Um, so we won't see the results of any measures that are taken now for a while, but there's no better time to start than the present, uh, despite high interest rates. Uh, it's all urgently needed, and uh, I'll definitely be looking to all levels of government to do their part to drive forward on this critical issue. Oh, certainly. There's a lot of conversation around that. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. Thanks, Margareta. All the best.